Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today's all about the Cannes Film Festival. And I am so excited. It's currently happening, and we're every single day getting reviews, positive or very, very bad or mixed, from new releases, which is just really exciting. New movies, new Oscar season ahead. We'll get into maybe how or why these movies don't end up at the Oscars usually, but maybe some of them will. So first we'll be talking about the current festival happening, new releases, what we've heard, and then we'll be going into three movies that won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival, one who didn't get an Oscar nomination, and for that we'll be talking about Kirsten Dunst in Melancholia, one winner that became an Oscar nominee, and that's Penelope Cruz in Volver. And then our can winner that translated to the Oscar is Sally Field and Norma Ray. This is probably the most eclectic group of movies we'll ever talk about here on Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an interesting week for movie viewing. Yeah, it was a trip really watching these back to back to back, but I'm excited to get into why some of these performers had Oscar success as well as Cannes success and why some do not. Thinking of the Cannes Film Festival just as a festival experience, I was lucky enough to go last year. I loved it. It is so glamorous and fun. But the important thing to keep in mind from all of these festivals that we'll talk about, Cannes, Venice, New York Film Festival, Sundance, Telluride, TIFF, any of them, festivals are this experience unlike any other where they generate hype and buzz, and that's their intention a lot of times. So you will hear extreme reactions. So please take these with a grain of salt. I have come out of festival screenings where I have raved about a film, raved about a performance, and then a couple months later, I've thought, you know, it was okay, actually. It was the experience. It was seeing mm-hmm. the standing ovation. It was seeing the director there, the cast, doing a Q&A. I saw Kyle Buchanan. He tweeted something great today, which was, most people on the ground have thought that Cannes films so far are fine, dot, dot, dot. But some journalists are working themselves mm. into rave or trash hysterics after every mid-screening. Mm-hmm. So again, just something to keep in mind, especially as we're going through the reactions, I think, to some of these that we've seen so far. And I remember you saying last year, and I think that's when I learned this, is that there's a standing ovation for every movie, no matter what, at Cannes. Mm-hmm. And everything you see on Twitter is... This movie got a five-minute standing ovation, and that's kind of the minimum. Some of these movies we'll talk about got five-minute standing ovations. I'm like, okay, well, that's nothing. (laughs) Right. Like, a five-minute standing ovation is relatively short for Cannes. So (laughs) just, again, they always will pull those quotes, like, Top Gun Maverick, five-minute standing ovation, Tom Cruise, honorary (laughs) Palm d'Or. And it's like, okay, yes. Oh, no. Did he really? <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. The honorary palm door is pretty cool, but the five minute standing ovation, do not read into it. It happens for every single movie. <laughs> so the longest standing ovation, I believe, is Pan's Labyrinth for 22 minutes. Mm, amazing. That's an Adam Driver pulling out a cigarette, uh, <laughs> passing the time. Wow. Don't remind <laughs> me of that. <laughs> Like one of the best moments in my life. (laughs) That's a quality standing ovation length. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Five minutes seems so small. Anyway, a movie that is not small, a movie that is great in scope, (laughs) in scale, is George Miller's follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road, 3,000 Years of Longing. This has received, I would say, very polarizing reactions so far. Some calling it Mm -hmm. the greatest disappointment of the festival to others saying it can be the first best picture nominee of the year out of Cannes. This, of course, also stars Idris Elba and our mother, Tilda Swinton. Did you watch the trailer for this first? I watched part of it, and I really didn't know what to expect. Like a sweeping drama with these two actors, and we knew nothing about it previously. And now we get this trailer with like, pretty intense music and hearing that there are a lot of visual effects going on and that it's the story about storytelling and like a writer's paradise. I didn't watch all of it because I kind of wanted to save that. But 
I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. Okay. I have to ask you one question about the trailer just because I don't want to spoil it if you because I know you like going in really blind to a lot of these. Mm-hmm. Did you see Idris Elba and how he sort of emerges in the trailer? I don't think so. Okay. I won't say it then. But that There's, was shocking. Okay. <laughs> There's me. a still of him like screaming from a bird's eye shot. Is it that? No, no. We'll get to it when we review the film. Because again, I don't want to spoil what it looked like to me. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still excited. I think the initial hype was like reading Clayton Davis's review. This is the shape of water, but it's actually the tree of life. And to me, I'm like, okay, I like the latter half of that statement. But then hearing about the mixed reviews, like you said, this happens to a lot of movies that get really strong buzz. So I'm still hopeful. And I really like George Miller. If this is a success for me, then I think I can like really trust him as a director because he has Babe and Mad Max Fury Road under his belt. And this is quite the range. Both five-star films for me, if we're being honest. (laughs) (laughs) I was obsessed with Babe as a kid and then wanted... Mad Max Fury Road to win more Oscars, so. Mm -hmm. We really need to revisit Babe. It's been a long time. Yeah. Best Picture nominee, (laughs) Babe. (laughs) (laughs) Other ones we are getting, I think, at the time of recording, our big day hasn't happened yet, which is usually Monday the 23rd. We're recording this on the 22nd. But the 23rd, we get Crimes of the Future and decision to leave so the Cronenberg and the Park Chan-wook which I'm very excited for both Mm. of those both are competing Mm. for the Palm Door how do you feel about both of these are you excited are you going to read the reactions are you going to wait what are you thinking with crimes I've seen a few tweets that you really need to go in with an open mind and this could be like trailer talk but it's like gruesome body horror And I don't usually see all of Cronenberg's movies. Like, I'm not even sure I saw History of Violence. Definitely didn't see A Dangerous Method. Started Cosmopolis. Again, Eastern Promises. I'm excited that he's, like, going back to his roots. Like, I feel like this is more like The Fly. So I'm very intrigued. I really know nothing about the Park Chan-wook movie. But I fully trust in him. Mm -hmm. And I'm very excited. And then another one I'm super excited for is Broker, which we kind of talked about last week as well. Yes. Oh my God. So that's the Corita one and Broker, the premise of it, it sounds so intriguing to me. I haven't watched the trailer yet. I don't want to see any of it. I just want to stay away. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. But I did watch the Decision to Leave trailer and it looks incredible. It's going to be another thriller from him. And I already need to know everything about these characters. Crimes of the Future... I am instructing all of our listeners, you cannot spoil this for me because my dad is the biggest David Cronenberg fan and he's making me wait (laughs) until he comes to New York to visit me to see it. And that will not be until the end of June. So I'm going to have to wait a couple of weeks (laughs) to go. So please, you can give me your reactions, but don't spoil it for me. I might have to mute it until I can see it because I do have to wait. We're going to do it as a combined Father's Day birthday (laughs) activity. (laughs) yeah and this is a neon release in theaters june 3rd which is pretty soon yeah don't rub it in i again having to wait an additional three weeks quite a father-daughter bonding moment yeah and i guess another movie that's already come to can and has been reviewed by a lot of people we have top gun maverick which is going to be in theaters today right the day of our episode release so if you're listening to this top gun maverick is already out you can go see it I'm excited to see this. It has gotten really positive reviews. I do not buy the best picture talk. We're going to ignore that until it happens. That is not going to be a discussion point for this show. (laughs) I'm sure there will be other shows where you can find that, but this will not be one of them. Yeah, do not expect to hear about this on our super early Oscar prediction episode. Maybe in like visual effects or something, but no. Mm -hmm. Sound. That song, that's very forgettable. We don't Mm-mm. we don't know. I don't yeah. think it's happening. The song you think you don't think is happening? No. It's barely mm-hmm. been on the Billboard 100. It was like yeah. 88. It's too early also. Yeah. Anyway, I am very excited for Elvis. I just want to know if this movie is 
good, bad, campy, too much. I saw a clip from it on Twitter and it didn't look promising to me. So I'm just curious how the full product comes together. Well, Lisa Marie Presley is like super pro the portrayal of Elvis by Austin Butler, which like, okay. (laughs) Baz Luhrmann is like not a go-to for me. After I had to sit through Australia, the like three hour epic. I never saw it. No. I skipped it. No. I couldn't. It was bad. (laughs) I probably fell asleep. My Lord, that was not great. So I don't know about this one. I guess I can see a world where we will talk about this movie come Oscar time, come Oscar predictions, whether it's for, you know, Austin Butler, we do seriously need to probably consider him because people in music biopics get nominated throughout the season, whether it's Rami Malek winning the Oscar or it's Taron Edgerton almost getting the nomination. Like this is very possible. So we have to keep it on our radar for sure. Tom Hanks also is giving like a heavily prosthetic. Not. <laughs> I'm I'm just saying like he's a two-time winner. We we have to be ready for that. <laughs> Oof, he is our Baron of the season. <laughs> I really hope that he doesn't take an oil bath in the movie. <laughs> but you're right. Like hairstyling and makeup very possible even just for that and then i mean any of his movies we have to think like costume design production design like i'm sure these are things that will be considered unless the movie is Mm -hmm. a complete flop which i mean that's definitely still in the cards so we will see i'm very eager to see the reactions and then one more movie that premiered today as of recording is after sun which i previously didn't know anything about but is coming out with rave reviews. Some quotes, emotional belter, Paul Mezcal should be in the Oscar conversation. It's a movie about depression. Again, I didn't really look it up. I love going into these with high praise, not knowing much. Mm-hmm. And a movie like this where also people said the last 10 minutes, the entire theater was sobbing. I want to be there. <laughs> oh my God. So I'm very excited. And Again, for a movie about depression, we'll be talking about Melancholia shortly. Mm-hmm. A nice little segue. But <laughs> did you see any bad reviews about this or have no. you seen anything on this? I didn't. I This movie wasn't on my radar going in and I have only seen positive things. And I'm very excited to see this now. And you know, Paul Mezcal mm-hmm. should be in the Oscar conversation. That's always exciting to hear. Yeah, I think my brain has been really occupied by One Fine Morning, the new Mia Hansen love movie getting praise. So I'm very excited for that. My my girl, um, after doing so well with Bergman Island, I feel like I, yeah, I'm just so excited to see that one. And Vicky Crapes is in also, a new movie yeah, called Corsage. Exactly. Yeah, it's, I think <laughs> you should probably stay away from it. It's like an Aust- <laughs> Austrian period film. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, oh, those two, I'm like, Give them to me now. I need them. And then the last one I just wanted to mention briefly is James Gray's movie Armageddon Time. Anne Hathaway looked perfect on the red carpet for this. Pristine. Insane. Jeremy Strong is in it. Anthony Hopkins. And it's gotten very polarizing reviews. But I think we can just keep it on our radar because it is an autobiographical film from a director. And these do sometimes pop up in the Oscar conversation, whether it's Belfast or Roma or Fanny and Alexander. Like they (laughs) they will appear from time to time. So definitely keeping it on my radar. You know, we have another year of 10 Best Picture nominees ahead. So that's a lot of room for movies and sometimes polarizing ones can crack in. And keep an eye on everything coming out of Cannes. I feel like we are almost there really with our first major festival. Yes, we had Sundance earlier in the year, but Cannes, as we will discuss through these nominations and wins, is a place where international films enter the Oscar race, which is very exciting. So always keep an eye on it, who wins these awards, because we could see them later on down the line for sure. All right, so now we'll get into the meat of our episode, talking about these Best Actress winners at Cannes. Our first Best Actress winner that we'll talk about is Kirsten Dunst for Melancholia. Description here, two sisters find their already strained relationship challenged as a mysterious new planet 
threatens to collide with Earth. This was directed by Lars von Trier and also stars Alexander Skarsgård, Kiefer Sutherland, Charlotte Gonsborg, Charlotte Rampling, and John Hurt. So a little bit about Kirsten Dunst this Oscar season. She won a can, of course, and she won with the National Society of Film Critics. Meryl Streep was the Oscar winner this year for The Iron Lady. She won at the New York Film Critics Circle, which I feel like people forget. I feel like a lot of times people think of this as a very, like, awards-baity industry performance, but it was embraced by critics to some extent. Kirsten, mm-hmm. she was also runner-up at LAFCA, so the LA Film Critics Association. The winner there was Yoon Jung-hee for Poetry. At the Oscars that year, again, Meryl Streep won for The Iron Lady. Our other nominees were Glenn Close for Albert Nobbs, iconic, Viola Davis for The Help, Rooney Mara for Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and Michelle Williams for My Week with Marilyn. We will talk about why Kirsten Dunst was not nominated for this performance, but generally, what do you think of this movie and this performance? This is a weird movie, and I hadn't seen it since... I initially saw it 11 years ago and thinking back, I'm like, okay, now I kind of understand why this wasn't an Oscar movie. Mm -hmm. I think it deserved attention in certain places, but it kind of feels disjointed in how it brings about Justine's condition and like mental state because it's very erratic. But the first time that she goes into this depression, it's like very sudden and I didn't feel like it was prefaced that well. So you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? And then you start to see that the relationship between her and her now husband's family and her sister, they're all in this somewhat ugly place. They're kind of walking on eggshells. The family is horrid. The brother-in-law, he's like paying for this weekend and the wedding and he's just an asshole. He's like, you need to know how much I spent on this weekend because you're ruining it. Like, yeah. who says that to someone who's clearly going through something? Mm-hmm. But in that same way, I feel like Lars von Trier was the perfect director to capture something like this because Kirsten is going through it. It's yeah. a performance. And like even in those opening shots, which we get to later in the movie, but when she's just totally devoid of emotion and she has like these huge bags under her eyes it's hard to see her like this like when she can't lift her legs to get into the bathtub yeah and in understanding where she's at it's it's rough um but i think it's a great juxtaposition to the story that's happening the the planetary issue that he aligns the character development with how do you feel about this movie um okay I do not like Lars von Trier's films. (laughs) I'm going to start there. He is a director who I find very tiresome. I think a lot of his movies are very style over substance. It's a little too grandiose for me. I feel like he cares way more about getting his point across than about any of his characters. He wants to shock and surprise the audience. And, you know, for me... There's enough shock in my everyday life in the world that I don't really need that necessarily in all of my films. And I talk a lot about how much I love rewatching films. I find his style of films very much one and done where you watch them and you never want to touch them again. And that's just not for me. But I do think that Kirsten in this movie is so wonderful that I will recommend it to anyone. I think it's it's worth watching this movie just for her performance and for the visual style alone. Um, the visual style in the movie is incredibly impressive. The shots are stunning. I love mm-hmm. the Wagner that's played from Tristan and Isolde. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful movie. And I will say, like, this is the only Von Trier film that I like and that I will recommend to other people. So I'm excited that we're talking about this one because it is an outlier for me. And I think part of it is, like, You know, up to this point, if you think about the roles that Kirsten Dunst had been taking on, she's this former child actress who we love from Jumanji. She was in Spider-Man. She's in Bring It On. She can do so many different things as an actress, but she hadn't done anything like this before. 
I would say not many actresses have done anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a this is a heavy lift for any performer, and I think that she accomplishes it so well. You believe her in every moment of the film, whether she, like you said, can't lift her legs to get into the bathtub because she's so depressed, or you know when she is just like she doesn't seem to care that. They get into this car crash and she's running very late to her own wedding. But then when it comes to, you know, just walking in the room to cut the cake, she can't do it. So I feel like it is maybe one of the greatest films about depression that's ever been made. And I feel like that is also due to her performance, even more so than to Von Trier and his style. Mm -hmm. I love how in this movie you get such a fun you use the word juxtaposition. I think that's right. The juxtaposition between the way that Kirsten Dunst's character, Justine, approaches tragedy compared to her sister, Claire. She's incredibly functional. Usually she's very withdrawn, but here she's just like very calm, at ease, and her sister's freaking out. She can't do anything in those moments. So I find that very fascinating. And I think that Kirsten Dunst is able to really effectively pull that off. So I love this performance. And again, I would recommend this film just for her performance alone. Well, I love to that point. I love in the end when they're in the tent, how you see them two dealing with what's happening so, Mm -hmm. so differently. And that she is very calm while Claire is really taking in that moment and just freaking out completely. And you don't really know which one you would be in that kind of scenario. But what I found interesting is on a Reddit thread. Always a place to go if you really want the deep stuff. (laughs) Well, for a movie like this, exactly. No, yeah. I'm serious. No, I I didn't mean that to be like cheeky. I'm I'm serious. (laughs) Someone had commented that the idea for this film originated during one of Lars's therapy sessions. And a therapist told him that depressive people tend to act more calmly than others under heavy pressure because they already expect bad things to happen. So with that idea, he developed this film and just by happenstance added this planetary astrophysical element to it, Hmm. which I absolutely love the prologue to this movie. Oh, yeah. And that's the other point is that he wanted the audience to know from the outset that these planets are going to collide and that the world is going to end. And he didn't want audiences to be distracted by the suspense of not knowing. So you getting that very early, it's like, then it goes into family drama. Mm -hmm. But I think Alexander Skarsgård and Kirsten Dunst are also at their physical, young-looking peaks. They are just stunning in the beginning. They look like Barbie and Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When they're in that limo, they're smiling, they're kissing, they look adorable. So that was fun. And seeing Charlotte Rampling pop in there as the (laughs) marriage-hating ex-wife was just so much fun. Oh, my scene stealer. I love Charlotte Rampling. And she, I mean, she did the same thing in Dune. She did the same thing in Benedetta. Mm -hmm. I feel like we can always count on her to just deliver the strongest line readings in the most biting, wry way. (laughs) I love it. And again, I feel like of this phenomenal ensemble cast, Dunst is the clear scene stealer winner. I mean, just her sitting on that stack of chairs in the (laughs) reception, that that room. I love it. I feel like I have that saved in my reactions folder (laughs) inappropriately for when I ever need to use it. Yeah, that's one of my favorites for sure. So getting into the awards part of it, why do you think that Dunst wasn't nominated for this performance? Ooh, yeah. So this is very complicated. Uh, the first first thing I have to say is just that this is a this is an inaccessible Von Trier film, first and foremost. Like, it's very weird. The Academy is probably not going to go for something like this broadly. And the actors branch, while they can kind of go off script sometimes and pick some really cool one-off performances, I feel like Dunst here really needed to be supported by the critics. She needed to be championed fully by them if she wanted a nomination here. The more complicated part, (laughs) I read this in an IndieWire interview with Dunst, and I found this 
very sad and horrifying. Basically, Lars von Trier ruined her chances at getting nominated. He had a very controversial press conference after this movie came out at Cannes, where he made comments saying that he understood Hitler, saying that he was a Nazi, and he was banned from the festival palace. And later, you know, other people said, like, he's he's not a Nazi, this is him being controversial, etc. But, in my mind, not good mm-hmm. enough. <laughs> so, Dunst said to IndieWire, she said, that's not even my fault, I got dragged for something somebody else said, referring to what he said mm-hmm. at this press conference. Some people have looked the other way, but apparently not for me. I shouldn't be affected by the things that he said. He was very inappropriate and idiotic. And so I'm pleased that the festival and the jury could see beyond his words. And that's in reference to her winning Best Actress. Mm -hmm. And then later on, she says this, which I actually really love thinking about now, how she's been nominated finally for The Power of the Dog. She said, there are a lot of these movies that people love, like pretty shitty movies. If you look at the almighty Rotten Tomatoes of this generation, you will see. I feel like every movie I've done has been appreciated later, most of them. So again, she's an actress who, and she knows that she's never appreciated in her time. And we've talked about that, like a lot of great performances. They're not appreciated when they come out. They age very well if they're that good. But I'm happy that she finally was nominated for The Power of the Dog and that she was appreciated in her moment, Mm -hmm. even though I think she should have won. But that's okay. But yeah, what do you think about that? Why else do you think she wasn't nominated? Did you know this about Von Trier and his like inappropriate behavior? Now that you say that, like maybe I remember hearing that at the time. But again, this was so long ago. I don't really remember. But that makes a lot of sense. It's very cringe and really sad on her part. Because it is like, even if we know this now, if the marketing for a movie is really poor... It affects everything, and that goes, again, from what one person can say or do or done in the past. Like, that affects any movie, like their past movies or movies that are still in post-production that haven't been released, and then they end up getting recast, and that's also something that we've experienced recently. But I think looking from the award side of things is what I kind of saw is that we don't usually get movies now at the Oscars with, like, one actress nomination and that's it or one technical and that's it especially a big one like cinematography which i'll mention in a second i love all of that here the camera work the filters the framing a lot of the shots are just so stunningly beautiful but you're really not going to get a best cinematography nom and or best actress nom and that's it Yeah, I mean, this year with Spencer, that's why a lot of us hadn't predicted it. We counted Kristen Stewart out because we were like, is this movie just going to get a Best Actress nomination and that's it when the (laughs) industry didn't respond positively to it? But in Kristen Stewart's case, one, her performance in the movie was a little bit more awards friendly, believe it or not. It is a biopic. And two, Pablo Lorraine didn't say anything inappropriate that I know of. But I also feel like in the movie, it can be difficult, especially for an older audience, I feel. It's Mm -hmm. very weird, a bit jarring. And I'm not sure he fully respects women. I mean, Bjork accused him of sexual harassment when they made Dancer in the Dark. So yeah, I I concur. Just the characters of Claire and Justine. I don't know. But again, the men suck in this movie too. So maybe he just doesn't care about any (laughs) human being. What did I say? He doesn't care about his characters. Like, this is a problem that I have with his movies. He he doesn't care about his characters. That's how I feel, personally. So our next episode won't be about Uma Thurman and Nymphomaniac. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, but I wanted to ask you because I have a very vague memory of you and I waiting in line for tickets for something. I think it was an event at Ohio okay. State and you were watching Nymphomaniac on your computer. <laughs> Do you remember this? Absolutely not. Yes, I think you were. I swear. But I don't hate Nymphomaniac, and I think Uma Thurman in this movie is phenomenal. So would you have nominated Kirsten Dunst looking at this group? There are a lot of stars in this list. I feel like I would have. I probably would have swapped her out with Michelle Williams, but I also didn't love My Week with Marilyn. I think Glenn Close is such an inspired nomination here. And I didn't love The Iron Lady. I don't know. 
that win is just like Gary Oldman's darkest hour win for me. Yeah, I think we'll talk about that win at some point because it is a sort of fascinating entry on Meryl Streep's Oscar resume. But I definitely would have nominated Kirsten Dunst here. She would also be my personal winner of the year. Yeah. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, would it be Best Actress? Yes, definitely. I would say cinematography is a close second because it is so beautiful and very well shot. But I and some of the shots are just so perfect. Like I, they're ingrained in my memory. I can't forget them. Even though this was only my second time ever watching the movie, I still had mm-hmm. shots that were imprinted mm-hmm. on my brain. I would give it to Kirsten Dunst. It's her movie to me. And what she does here is a major step forward for her as an actress and one of my favorite performances by a woman in that decade. Definitely. I'm going to say no. And I'm going to give it to cinematography. I do think she should have been nominated. Definitely. But those shots, you just can't. Even in the beginning, probably visual effects is like my third or fourth nom. But I just I love the colors, how the hues change throughout the movie. Yeah, there's a lot. Again, I have a poster of it in my room with like the lightning coming from Justine's fingers. It's so beautiful. Okay, next up is Volver. So this is Penelope Cruz's nomination. Description of the movie. After her death, a mother returns to her hometown in order to fix the situation she couldn't resolve during her life. It's directed by Pedro Almodovar and also stars Carmen Maura, Lola Duenas, Blanca Portillo, and Johanna Cobo. So about Penelope Cruz's trajectory through the award season, she was nominated at SAG, BAFTA, and Golden Globes. And then also for the movie, it also won Best Screenplay at Cannes. And then at the Oscars, Volver in general was shortlisted for Foreign Language, but wasn't an actual nominee. And then in Best Actress, Helen Mirren won for The Queen. And then the other nominees were Judi Dench for Notes on a Scandal, Meryl Streep, again, for The Devil Wears Prada, and Kate Winslet for Little Children. So what are your thoughts on Volver? So this was my first time watching Volver. I thought I had seen it before, but I hadn't. And I really liked it. Yeah, this one is, I mean, definitely in my top two with All About My Mother, probably. Um, I really, really loved it. I actually thought it was sort of a fascinating double feature with Melancholia. Both films sort of deal with the inevitability of death, but you see the drastically different viewpoints of these directors, which Mm -hmm. I thought was fascinating to view them together. I love how at the beginning of the film, these women are like taking care of this grave and you see these winds like blowing things around and you think of all these external forces that are in these women's lives. And I thought that was really profound and how they're taking care of this grave before they ultimately pass on before they ultimately enter it in the future and how in this movie I think that the women are so strong and in Almodovar films this always happens we have these incredible ensemble casts led by actresses and here I felt that the way that these women approached death and found power over it and power in their relationships in the face of death was so interesting and so different from in Melancholia where you have no choice but to succumb to it. And it's this very devastating view of it, I think. But here there's a warmth to it. And I think that Almodovar often plays with melodrama and he certainly does here, but this feels a bit more playful. I think there's a lightness to it, even though you have things like murder, rape, death, the supernatural, like these things are all there, but there's still that the warmth, the playfulness, those bright colors, the tone is so clear here and unique. And Penelope Cruz definitely holds it down. She understands that tone so well. And I think it makes perfect sense that she is Almodovar's muse because it's a phenomenal performance. I loved her in this. She's incredible. This is my favorite Almodovar. I think all of his styles and techniques just come together so perfectly with the story. And I would say more so than Parallel Mothers, mm-hmm. which is a great movie, but I absolutely loved the score here. 
Oh, yeah. And think it could have gotten other nominations. Yeah. If you're comparing the Alberto Iglesias scores, I would pick Volver over Parallel Mothers. And I like the Parallel Mothers score just fine. Mm -hmm. But this one, this is the one. And it was interesting. So I said that she won at Cannes for Best Actress, but the entire cast actually won Best Mm -hmm. Actress together, which I think is incredible because I do love this whole cast. I think the relationships between mother and daughter, between her mother and her daughter and that whole saga, and then her sister and her aunt. It's just such a close-knit community that I love how everybody interacts and they take care of each other. And my favorite scene of Cruz, which would, I wonder if this was her Oscar scene, but it's when she's singing. It like brought me to tears. And I don't think that's her voice, but... No, she was dubbed. It, yeah. <laughs> I lo- I did look that up because I was It was like pretty too. clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think it's just phenomenal. Um, she like pours her soul out. This whole role she does. And I love how he, Pedro, uses his actresses and understands them. And that's in all of his movies. Mm-hmm. He loves women much more so than our last movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, that's definitely part of the reason why I respond more to Almodovar as a filmmaker than to Lars von Trier. But I think, yeah, Penelope Cruz here, she's so vulnerable. Like throughout this whole movie, you just like feel that vulnerability from her. She is an incredibly expressive actress, but she's also really funny in the part. And I agree. I love that the other actresses in this film won. Best actress that can too. Can can get really creative with who they will give their wins to, right? Like they're not beholden to these standards like the Academy is, you know, like the actresses from Blue is the Warmest Color both won the Palme d'Or one year. Like that can happen. It just all depends on who the jury president is and they can make those decisions, which I think is very cool. I also thought it was a fun follow-up to Fanny and Alexander because this movie plays a lot with truths and with reality, Mm -hmm. with ghosts, with matriarchs. I loved how those themes came out, and I actually found the relationship between the ghost of the mother and the daughter to be very moving. Like I was almost in tears multiple times, like when the daughter gets into bed with her or when the mother's in the car, like, watching. She really wants to see her -hmm. other daughter. Like, that is just, like, it's very overwhelming, Um, And again, it's something that could be really depressing or dark, but it has a comic touch to it, which I really liked. Yeah, it's Almodovar playing with magical realism and his quintessential melodrama and using these bold colors. Again, it just really works here for me that it's such an inviting story world. You're in this small town. I could rewatch this over and over. And I'm surprised I haven't since I had seen this. This is another one that I hadn't seen since it was released. I will definitely revisit this. I feel like this would be a great rewatch. And you saw one of his earlier movies recently, too, All About My Mother. Yes, I saw that on 35mm in London when I was there. And it was so much fun to see it on film. The colors were just, like, popping. That movie is also incredibly tragic but absolutely hilarious (laughs) there is one character in particular who is so funny have you seen this before Mm -mm. oh i think one of his only ones i haven't seen at this point okay you would love it i think i I think you would really like it because mainly this one character who i won't spoil but then also there are allusions to all about eve and a streetcar named desire Mm. throughout the movie which I really, really love. So seeing it in a theater with a very lively English crowd was very fun. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to because I saw as part of my like criterion challenge, women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And you can see him because it's one of his earlier movies, those creative juices flowing into what becomes like Volver and Parallel Mothers later on. Mm hmm. And uses a lot of the same actresses over and over, which I like too. Yeah. And Penelope Cruz is also in All About My Mother. She's very young, though. She's like a baby. It's so so cute, like seeing her in this part. I think her character in the movie is supposed to be like 26. um, So she's really young. 
So I think first, why do you think Penelope Cruz was able to get that nomination at the Oscars? And then why didn't she win? So another fun fact about her being nominated is that she became the first Spanish woman nominated in this category, which is shocking, but amazing. I'm glad she was nominated. We've seen a few Almodovar films get in at the Oscars. And I think part of why she showed up here is because throughout the whole season, she had gotten every other important acting nomination. So it makes sense. And again, I'm happy for that. I'm glad that it was more a sure thing then than this year was. We were like, is she getting in? It was kind Mm -hmm. of like the fifth, sixth spot. And as to why she didn't win, I read that Helen Mirren was the favorite even before The Queen came out. It was her movie. Again, it's a biopic. She is the only actress I also read to play Elizabeth, both Queen Elizabeths. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. And those came out in back-to-back years. It was Elizabeth won, I believe, a TV show, and then this, The Queen. Another fun fact is that Helen Mirren is the only performer to earn the triple crown of acting in the U.S. and the U.K. with both of their respective awards. Oh, wow. I'm like, okay, great. We have to talk about Helen Mirren this year now. Yeah, we do. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, yeah, BAFTA. Okay, so that would be BAFTA, Olivier. What's the TV one? Do you know? So BAFTA Oscar, Olivier, Olivier Tony. Tony, Emmy and BAFTA again for oh, okay. TV. Okay, BAFTA for TV. Okay, wow. Oh, my God. Oh, that's very cool. That's It's fascinating. She swept this season. When I was looking at it, I... I was like, I need to go back and look at FYC ads for Helen Mirren because if you look at just her critics' nominations, it's just wins. <laughs> just every single <laughs> critics group she won, and then she won every single precursor. So it was happening. It was mm-hmm. a done deal. And I even remember, like 2006, I was in middle school still in 2006, and I went to see this movie because she was winning everything. And it was like, <laughs> she's going to win the Oscar. So we went to go see The Queen. Tour de Force. I remember loving The Queen, too. And I've been wanting to rewatch this ever since as well. She even won the Volpe Cup out of Venice. Mm. So, like, there was nothing stopping her. And then with the movies themselves, The Queen made $56 million in the U.S. and $123 million worldwide, while Volvere made 13 in the U.S. and 87 So both films have really high box office success, actually. But The Queen, I think, just soared above and beyond and Helen Mirren was not stopping for anybody. Yeah. And I think with Penelope Cruz, we talk a lot about how the Academy will nominate performances sometimes that are non-English language performances, but they rarely win. And I think for Penelope Cruz, like this was sort of her big global breakout role. She had been in some big box office earners, but we're mixed review films so like vanilla sky with tom cruise um but she had been in movies that had done well at the box office so she was definitely starting to become a name but this movie volver was where she first i think started getting critical success like she saw she was getting very positive reviews her performance was really standing out and i think that was enough for her with the can win to push her into those the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, BAFTA, mm-hmm. Oscar, to get those nominations. It was just like no one was stopping Helen Mirren, like we said. I think a thing about Penelope Cruz, too, is that she she's one of the most beautiful women in the world. Like, I, I mean that in a way that isn't like she's only, you know, she's only beautiful. Like, she's a very talented actress as well. But, like, she has that old Hollywood beautiful glamour that people want to see in their movie stars. And also she's this like very emotional, vulnerable, talented actress. And when you combine those in a role, it's almost like you're watching Sophia Loren or like a star like that from the past. And I think Oscar voters are open to that and audiences are very engaged with that type of performance as well. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, would it be Best Actress for Penelope Cruz? Absolutely. It is this time. Everything you just said about her, I absolutely agree with she is just so captivating to watch she gets every emotion right she entirely plays into this story and this character and i loved her so much i think the movie should have gotten more nominations even but 
I'm glad she was here. It's hard to say she should win over Helen Mirren because it wasn't going to happen, but she definitely holds her ground in this group of five. What about you? Would you give her best actress? Yes. My answer is definitely Penelope Cruz. I feel like for all of the reasons that you said, she's just what stands out to me about this movie. I would say screenplay, score, foreign language film, all should have been nominated as well. Um, maybe even Alma Jovar for director that year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like just <laughs> yeah. all of the awards, but I do still feel like Penelope Cruz is my standout. So yes, the answer is best actress for me again. <laughs> all right. And our last movie that we'll talk about today is Norma Ray, where Sally Field won. Description of the movie here. A young single mother and textile worker agrees to help unionize her mill despite the problems and dangers involved. This was directed by Martin Ritt and also stars Bo Bridges, Barbara Baxley, Ron Liebman. But it is Sally Field's movie, 100%. Mm-hmm. In addition to Best Actress at the Oscars, it won Best Original Song for It Goes Like It Goes and was nominated for Picture and Adapted Screenplay. That year, Sally Field also won the Golden Globe, New York Film Critics Circle, NBR, and the screenplay was nominated at WGA. The other nominees at the Oscars that year, we had Jill Clayburgh for Starting Over, Jane Fonda for The China Syndrome, Marsha Mason for Chapter 2, and Bette Midler for The Rose. First, was this your first time seeing this movie, and what did you think about the movie and Sally Field's performance? This was the first time I saw Norma Ray, and I haven't seen any of the other nominated movies either, so I really can't compare. I'm glad Sally Field has an Oscar from this, but I think the movie is fine. I was kind of surprised that, I don't know if it was this overwhelming force, maybe you know, but with Sally Field winning, there wasn't this big transformation. I'm also surprised it was a can movie, like a movie about the U.S. and the working class and this textile mill. Maybe now can is just very, very European and international, but it seems like a very off movie for Sally Field to win in as well. I was just kind of surprised because I wasn't super blown away but yes like seeing her standing up writing union on that clipboard and getting the entire factory to stop the machines and her getting carried out and taken to jail that moment was pretty big and the way she cares for her kids and family and kind of runs everything that we see her in so i liked her it's just not one of the biggest wins for me and i don't mean bad i just mean biggest i think that's fair I'm going to get this out of the way at the beginning because it has absolutely nothing to do with her winning or the quality of her performance. (laughs) But I was obsessed with her hair in this movie. I thought her hair looked perfect the entire time. It was so shiny and like perfect brunette 70s hair, which I'm obsessed with, Mm -hmm. of course. And I was like, how is it so shiny in what is supposed to be like Alabama humidity? I just I was very transfixed by this. (laughs) Anyway, now that I've said this, we can talk about the actual movie and her performance. I thought she was great in this. I will say I love The China Syndrome. I watched that earlier in the year. I've been working my way through Jane Fonda's filmography, which has been very fun. Mm -hmm. My favorite living woman who's not my mother. But I feel like at this point, Can is so much more American. Francis Ford Coppola wins the Palme d'Or for Apocalypse Now. Terrence Malick wins Best Director for Days of Heaven. Jack Lemmon wins Best Actor for The China Syndrome. Like The winners are just not as international or avant-garde pushing the boundaries as we see now. And back then also, you get a greater correlation between what the Academy goes for and what critics go for. So I feel like this sort of makes sense if we're thinking of, like, why was this movie at Cannes? I was thinking a lot about like Nomadland when I was watching it or, you know, these movies by people like Ken Loach or Andrea Arnold or like people who tackle the working class in their films. And there, I think there's an appetite for that to some extent still at the Oscars. I actually, when I was watching this movie, wrote down that this performance ages very well. And I still think if this movie came out today, she would win. Like, I could still see the Academy going for it. The movie's called Norma Mm -hmm. Ray. 
Like it, it is her movie mm-hmm. through and through. And you, if you like this movie, which the Academy did, why wouldn't she be the person that you thought of? I think that also for Sally Field, prior to Norma Ray, she sort of had trouble breaking into the film industry, being taken seriously. She was very much known for her TV roles, like Gidget and The Flying Nun. And this movie is very serious and it's a contemporary character drama. I like how you can see her grow throughout the film, like her character grow into like becoming someone who is much more confident and taking the reins. And I was very moved by the moment where she's holding up the sign that says union and everyone Mm -hmm. is shutting off the machines. And I feel like she has a couple of moments like that in the movie that could be like her Oscar scenes. So I feel like I thought this was a really strong performance. Not my favorite movie of the 70s by any means. I feel like it's like a very standard issues drama, but I did love her in it. I thought she was really good. I think the other biggest character in this movie is the sound. Besides her, they start the movie out in the factory and the sound is so deafening. Obviously, that is causing physical problems and... Mm -hmm why she's really pushing for this union and the way that that sound goes away in that scene is also why it hits really hard. Mm-hmm. And I like how they use that throughout. But yeah, her force is the movie. I actually thought I was like, wow, is this like the most an actress winner nominee has been in their respective movie, like percentage wise, because she is in almost every scene. That's a great question. Vivian Lee is probably the most like time-wise. So here after some quick research, we <laughs> found that she's in like the top 25% of winners of screen time, but the longest is Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind and then the highest percentage is Ginger Rogers and Kitty Foyle at 85%, while Sally Field is at 70 71% in Norma Ray. Mm. Still a pretty Large still chunk. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. you feel that and you see that too. So why do you think this translated to a Best Actress winner? It's very hard because looking at the whole list, I feel like there are quite a few that would come close or that would be my personal pick for the year. But one, it's definitely the time, right? Like you are much more likely, I think, to have this translate in 1979 than you are later on just because the way that the jury has changed the types of performances that they recognize it can have become much more international for example if you look at the 2010s alone there's one winner that even translated to a nomination Rooney Mara for Carol there aren't that many who've been able to do it so I think that's part of it I think that Norma Ray is also an incredibly academy-friendly movie. Like, this is a movie I think that would still be nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Mm -hmm. Screenplay. Like, it's a really easy watch, and the performance is a lead performance that's really easy to get behind. So all of this to say, like, I don't know why more haven't won, but, yeah, looking at the list, there are a couple, for sure, that I would have definitely given the Oscar and... I think that is the main reason it's become very international to the point that these movies just aren't getting nominated, period, even for international feature. And yes, there are some Oscar nominees, Oscar winners in this list, but it's for like either indie movies or, again, bizarre international films. And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, would it be for Sally Field as Best Actress? It would. I'm three for three on this one. I would definitely give Sally Field Best Actress. I think that this is her movie. It's a really strong role for her. And I feel like I wish that more Best Actress winners were like this, where they were able to just like take over an entire movie and the Academy appreciated it. Yeah, I would also give this to Sally. It is entirely her movie and she totally deserves it. And even though she earned an Oscar a few years after this, I'm glad... Her first award was for this and that she is remembered for such a provocative performance. And if you were looking at the Cannes Best Actress winners list, are there any others that you really love that you would recommend to our listeners? 
obviously Renata Reinsva. I mean, again, Mm -hmm. another episode this season that we can talk about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be out on Criterion very shortly. I love The Worst Person in the World. And you mentioned poetry earlier. Obviously, Yoon Jong-hee didn't win because Kirsten won. But poetry is directed by Lee Chang-dong, who made Secret Sunshine, which won Best Actress at Cannes in 2007. And I love his movies. I would recommend Secret Sunshine. Yeah, some like quiet, slow burn films, which is a great like South Korean subgenre that I absolutely love. The best. I would not necessarily recommend Possession with Isabella Johnny, but do you? I absolutely recommend Isabella Johnny in Possession. (laughs) (laughs) This performance is crazy. It's fully unhinged. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis's ex. I mean, she's more than that, but I just, I'm obsessed with early Daniel Day-Lewis, Isabella Johnny, paparazzi photos, and her performance here. I think she should have been nominated for an Oscar. And then two others. It's funny that Lee Grant won from Detective Story. We talked about Mm -hmm. that on our William Wyler episode. But then also iconic Betty Davis winning for All About Eve, which we will come back to this year. And I'm excited for that as well. I can't wait for that episode. It's going to be so much fun. Finally, I know we've been planning it for so long, so it'll be worth it. Those are great ones. Um, In addition to those, I would wholeheartedly recommend Jill Clayburg in An Unmarried Woman. I love that movie. That Best Actress Year would break the internet if film Twitter were around in 1978. It would have not been fun because everyone would have had a different favorite. I love that year. My, If I could pick one from this entire list, though, it would be Shelley Duvall for Three Women. I love, love, love this movie. It broke my brain. I've been thinking about it nonstop since I first watched it. And, oh my God, it just, it's amazing. And Shelley Duvall is absolutely perfect in this part. And she's an actress who's so underappreciated and misunderstood from her time. I think she's... Just, yeah, she's one of my all-time favorites, and I wish that she could have had Oscar glory because I think that she deserved it for this movie. We love Shelley Duvall in The Shining, but I will have to check this out because you mentioned this a few times. I think if you were to like an Altman film, this might be the one. I'll also throw in Julia Binoche for Certified Copy. I really liked that movie, too, and her performance. So that was our Cannes episode on the Best Actress winners. We will be back next week with another can discussion talking about the award winners. We'll have the Palm Door winner by that point, so we can talk about that. What it means for Oscar season, of course, as we are an Oscars-themed podcast. But next week, in addition to recapping can and all of our winners, we will be talking about men. <laughs> Not Alex Garland's men. <laughs> we will be... Doing a draft of sorts. We haven't done a draft in a long time. And this will be a preview to some of our new summer content coming your way. We'll be drafting men throughout film history in a bunch of different categories. Oscar winners. Men from the 40s. Hottest a man has ever looked in an Oscar winning role. All sorts of categories. (laughs) This will be absolutely unhinged. Like prepare yourself for the Smasher Pass Dune segment. Um, it will still be related to the Oscars, but it's just a fun little summer treat because we don't want to do our early Oscar predictions yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm already starting to feel that summer haze and that humidity. And I hope we translate that into words in this hot guy draft, because that's very much how this summer is going to be. I'm excited. I think this is a great way to start off the season. Exactly. Just drafting hot men. This will be so much fun. We'll share the board with you guys in all of the different categories. You can create teams of your own. And I'm excited too. This is a draft like just the two of us. So it'll it'll get very funny, I'm sure. (laughs) Prepare yourself. I think I need to prepare myself. But (laughs) if you like our podcast, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thank you everybody for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.